Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. For anyone just joining us today, we have been walking through the Sermon on the Mount for some time now, and we are drawing towards the end uh, in a number of weeks. Early in the new year, we'll be done. Today, we're picking things up, chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. Tim Hortons is uh, iconic across Canada. It's spread a little bit beyond, but really it's, I think, associated deeply with Canada. But long before Tim Hortons was iconic and well-known and all across Canada, um, it was a significant place in my life. I grew up in Mississauga and St. Catharines, half an hour on either side of the city of Hamilton, where the very first Tim Hortons ever opened, opened by a hockey player named Tim Horton. Probably most of you know that. Um, Interestingly, he he actually was killed in a car accident uh, right behind what would, in about a decade later, be my junior high on the QEW right by Lake Street in St. Catharines. Um, My neighbor owned four Tim Hortons. When I was a little kid, my older brother got hired by him to mow the lawn, and for, for mowing the lawn, he'd get $7 and a dozen donuts for the family. It was great. That was back in the days when Tim Hortons made donuts and coffee, and that was about it. Uh, it's changed considerably. But uh, what I wanted to share is that I remember a time when I was a kid. I'm, I'm one of four boys. I have an older brother and then younger twin brothers. I was right in the middle. And I remember one particular day, my dad came home from work. Uh, He worked in Toronto as an air traffic controller. And he came home, and he wanted to give us a treat. And so he came home with a box of donuts, a dozen donuts. And me and my brothers saw him come in with that, and there was great excitement until we opened it. There was a dozen donuts, but it was a dozen old-fashioned plain and I thought, what? I think I was probably like eight. And I'm like, what? And, and, and we heard my dad as he tried to explain, well, I wanted to give you a treat, but I wanted to give you something that was healthier. <laughs> and I thought, well, I remember arguing. I'm like, well, that, that doesn't work. If you want it to be a treat, it has to be a treat, something we like. So, you know, the sugary ones, Boston cream, etc. This morning, we come to a part in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus makes an amazing statement. Jesus tells us that God, our Heavenly Father, will give us good gifts if only we ask. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 7, 7 to 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Before we dive deeply into these verses, let me remind you, and for those who are just joining us, let me share with you a few things about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is prefaced by the announcement of good news, that in the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, a whole new order of existence has broken in the world. The future is spilling into the present. Heaven is invading the earth. 
I have said that when, when the good news of Jesus takes root in a person's heart, the good news of what Jesus is coming and all that that stands for takes root in our heart, something happens. And that something that happens is described by Jesus. That, that something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity. Men and women who exhibit different character traits. Men and women who live for a different purpose. Men and women with different behaviors and and different passions, ambitions, different ways of relating to the world, different ways of relating to those around them. The Sermon on the Mount, I've contended, is not God giving us, Jesus giving us a new law. It's not Jesus giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. No, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount is painting a picture of gospelized humanity, What we become increasingly as the good news of God's love and God's grace takes root in our hearts and the Holy Spirit has His way in us. The the last two Sundays we looked at two different texts that, that spoke about how we relate to one another on a horizontal plane, right? First about how how the Christ wants us not to be judgmental, condemning fault finders, that that we don't check our we're not to, to judge, be judgmental. But that that doesn't mean that we shut off our brains. No, we're called to engage in one another's lives to help one another identify and root sin out of our lives, but we need to do so first looking inward and then humbly, graciously, gently speaking into one another's lives. The text we looked at last week spoke about how though we're not to be judgmental, we are to be discerned. We're not to, to give what is sacred to dogs. We're not to throw pearls down before pigs. This morning, the passage, this passage shifts our focus from how we relate to those horizontally to how we are to relate to God, how we're to relate to our Heavenly Father. There are three questions that I want to ask this morning of this text. First, uh, what is the wrong conclusion that we must avoid? Secondly, what are the crit- critical truths that we must recognize? And third, what is the central point that Jesus is making? So first, what is the wrong conclusion that we must avoid. I could have entitled this message this morning, Jesus is my genie. Um, Some of you are familiar with the story of Aladdin. Uh, I'm not super familiar anymore. Years ago, used to be one of the books that we would read at home to our kids, right? Aladdin is a story of a, a boy, I think an orphan, in a marketplace. He finds a lamp, he rubs it, a genie, or Robin Williams pops out, something like that, right? And, and uh, there's this promise of three wishes being granted. Uh, you know, ask for anything. And uh, he, here in this text, it's, 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 it sounds better than that. It's not, there's no limit of three things. It, it, there seems just, just ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So, so is, is Jesus our genie? Is, is that what Jesus is saying? That we, we can just kind of get our wishes fulfilled? I, I have talked before about uh, vending machine theology, this idea that, that we come to God, that He is this vending machine, and if we put the right thing in, if we obey enough or believe the right thing or whatever it is, we do our part, then we get what we want from God. Is that what Jesus is saying? That we simply come and ask for whatever we want. Some will argue that. Some will, will argue that that's what the text seems to be saying. There are three uh, really important things when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Some of you perhaps have heard this before. Number one, context. Number two, context. Number three, context. 
We always need to interpret Scripture in light of context. We need to interpret it in light of its own immediate context and the context of Scripture as a whole. If we just parachute into an individual verse or verses, we can take things wildly out of context. I remember when I was in high school hearing a story of a man in the church who was, not my church, but in the, in the area who was engaged in multiple affairs, defending it with Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I mean, we, we laugh at the ridiculousness of it, but if we come to Scripture and just parachute in and take verses out of context, we can misuse them, misunderstand them wildly. And so what exactly does it mean if we are to look at these verses in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the context of Scripture as a whole? Well, let's just think about the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. The Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, and if you've been with us, you know the second Beatitude was what? Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are so broken by sin that they, they see their own sin, the darkness of their own hearts. They, they see the sin and brokenness of a world, and they are moved to tears. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. We read another beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for things to be rightly related. Rightly related to God. To see people rightly related to one another. That's what righteousness is. It's, it's all things the way they should be. And Jesus does not say, blessed are the righteous. He could have said that. But he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who who know that they are not righteous, that things are not the way they're supposed to be, but they long for it. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted. When people insult you and say all kinds of evil things about you, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount calls us to love our enemies, which means that we have enemies. Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation, which means both that, that we will face temptation and we will, we will often blow it and need his forgiveness. What is all of this just from the Sermon on the Mount? What does that reveal to us? It, does it not show us that the life Jesus invites us into, a life of following after him as his disciples, is not an easy life. It is not a pain-free life, a trouble-free life. Jesus says elsewhere in John's Gospel, in this world you will have trouble. We see that reality fleshed out throughout the pages of Scripture. That coming to Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, does not mean all will go smoothly and well. I mean, we look at the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I think it is, he's He's engaged in a little bit of a, I don't know, call it an argument with the Corinthians. They, they're looking down at Paul. They have these super apostles, these people who've shown up in Corinth, and, and they, they have really impressed the Corinthians, and they're kind of enamored with them, and they're, they're not so impressed with Paul and looking down their noses at Paul. And so Paul does some boasting, if you will, boasting in his weakness to say, hey, it, it, surely I am an apostle. And, and then here's what he writes. This is a longer text, but I'm going to read it to you. Are, are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, he says. I, I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 
the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Hardly an idyllic picture of the Christian life. Has Jesus invited us into a life of ease? A life where all will go smoothly, where there will not be suffering. I think too often we have had bad theology, the church in the West, not only in the West, but we've had had bad theology at this point. We've, we've missed the clear theology of suffering. We, we've bought into often, this is all around us, we can encounter this, this health and wealth prosperity theology that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy. I don't know what, what comes to your mind when I say the word theology. Some of you probably, your eyes glaze over like, okay, they're not, not interested really. But theology really is simply what we believe about God. It's a study about God, our, our theology. Jen Wilkin and J.T. English recently published a book, You Are a Theologian. And, and one of the things, they, one of the points they make is that, that theology directly impacts our discipleship. What we believe impacts how we live. And so if we have bad theology, that will lead us in the wrong direction. Right theologians, too. We, we need to think correctly about God and what it means to follow after Christ because the, the devastating results of wrong theology, bad theology at this point, that leads so many people to shipwreck their faith. Just think. I've encountered this many, many times over the years. Someone, someone comes to God and asks for something. Lord, do this. Give me this. This is what I want. And then it doesn't unfold in the way that that praying person hoped for, in that way they, they wanted. And so there is this anger at God. There is this sense that God cannot be trusted. Clearly God's word cannot be trusted. Or maybe God doesn't even exist. But what I want us to be clear on is that Jesus is not our genie. God is not a vending machine. And whatever this text is teaching us, whatever Jesus is trying to communicate to us here, it's not the equivalent of God giving us a blank check. When I wrote that in my notes, I thought, I don't know if I have to explain that yet to the younger generation. We used to write on paper numbers, sign it, and that was called a check. So a blank check was if someone gave you a check without the amount filled in, and they just signed it, and you could fill it in. God here, I would contend, is not giving us just a blank check. We, we need to think about a, a biblical view of life and discipleship. And he, here's what we see when we turn to Scripture. In the beginning, God creates the cosmos. He creates the world. He creates all things in the world. And the pinnacle of creation is humanity. God creates us. And all is well. Man, men and women, Adam and Eve, experience fellowship with God. They walk in intimacy with God and then they rebel against him. They reject his rightful authority. They commit treason. And they go their own way. And as a result of sin, all of creation is plunged 
into uh, the curse. The curse comes. And that means that things would no longer be the way they're supposed to be. There would be pain and death and decay, thorns and thistles. All of creation is impacted by sin, by our fall into sin, by, by the curse. Paul writes this in Romans 8, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. All of creation... All of humanity, we are living under the curse. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. So it is not only naive to expect that all will be rosy. It's it's not in line with what Scriptures clearly teach us. God has not promised to remove all pain, all suffering, all difficulty, even all sin as we battle against sin in our lives of discipleship in this earthly life. Jesus has promised that he has overcome the world, that he is overcoming the world, that he is in the process of setting things right. That's the good news, right? Heaven invading the earth, the future spilling into the present, that Christ is coming and he is bringing about this renewal, this restoration of all things. But we live in the the already but not yet. Already it's breaking in. Already we get to live as gospelized men and women. Already he is transforming us, but not yet is it fully here. No, in this world we will have trouble. And all of creation is groaning right alongside you and I as we groan in the face of difficulty. Groaning in the midst of suffering and pain. Groaning for the day when all things finally will be set right. And God in Christ has promised that that day is coming. He will make it happen. So the wrong conclusion to avoid is looking at what Jesus says here and concluding that we can just ask, Lord, take this away, bless me with this, give me that, and that, that life of, of bliss is available now in this world. So let's turn to our second question. What what are the critical truths that we must recognize? And there are two. First, look with me at the illustration Jesus uses in chapter 9, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 9 to 11. I want to read that again. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Did you notice what Jesus says there? You, though you are evil. We encounter here in Jesus' words, in the midst of this promise, the doctrine of human depravity. Now, the, the doctrine of human depravity does not say that we are as bad as we could be. That's not what that doctrine means. What it means is that, that we ha- have been marred by sin, that every part of us has been impacted by sin okay we can still do good Jesus says that even though you're evil you can still give give good gifts but but our lives have been marred by sin we are living under the curse still creating the image of God but but Jesus says here you though you are evil you see if we're to properly understand what Jesus is saying here this morning we need to we need to get this that as human beings we don't simply make mistakes. 
Right? Sometimes we talk about the wrong things we do as mistakes. Oh, that was a mistake. We might even talk about, oh, I, 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 I did a sin there. But see, the point of Scripture is not simply that we, certainly not that we just make mistakes. We make mistakes, but mistakes aren't sin. But not just that we, we commit sins sometimes, but that apart from Christ, apart from uh, redemption, we are sinners. We are evil. There, there is something bent, warped, wrong with us, that we are, in fact, children of wrath, that if we get what we deserve, apart from Christ, every one of us deserves God's just judgment. We have rebelled against Him. We have rejected His authority. We have said, I'll do it my way, thank you very much. Jesus says, you, though you are evil. He's getting at this reality. We've rebelled against our Creator. We've rejected His authority. We have become His enemies. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need redemption. That's that's why Jesus' coming is good news. Because on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty for our sin. On the cross, Jesus suffered for our rebellion. He suffered for for all that we've done so that through faith in Him, we are washed We are cleansed. We are forgiven. And and then we are clothed with His perfect obedience. It's not even that Jesus wipes the slate clean and now like, okay, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and don't screw up again. No, Jesus has cleansed us. He's forgiven us. And then He's covered us with His perfection. He's imputed His righteousness to us. So we are declared holy, righteous. The, The Father looks at you and sees the perfection of Christ. That's the glory of the gospel, that we were children of wrath, we were sinners, but now we're saints. We are adopted. We are children of the Father. That's the good news. And if we don't get that, if we don't see the depth of the problem of our sin, if we look at the wrong things we do and go, oh, that was a mistake, we have failed to recognize the depth of our problem, and we will never in that place understand the glory of the cross. We need to understand our depravity, that we are rebels against God who stand in complete need of His grace, and that in Christ it is available. He has poured it out for us. We simply need to cast ourselves down before Him. Remember how this whole sermon begins, the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come and know that you have nothing to give Your pockets are empty. Your hands are empty. You come only in need. And Jesus says what? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you come and you recognize the depth of your need. That's where it all begins. We need to understand that. And when we do, we will marvel at the cross. We will marvel at the good news of Christ. Though not the primary central point of the text, we need to see this, that though you are evil... We have a problem that only Christ could rectify, and He has come to do that. Second truth that was revealed here that we need to see is about who God is, but what God is like. Look, look at verse 11. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts? So if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more? That's the argument. If, if you can do this, God who is righteous, God who is love, God who is pure, God who is holy, God who is wise, who is kind, who is good. How much more will he give good gifts? You try. We, we try. We do. We can do this. 
Sometimes we screw it up like my dad, but, but we can give good gifts. How much more than our Father in heaven? Our Father in heaven. Jesus has already used that language of God as our Father when he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Remember, this then is how you should pray. Our Father. That the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the Almighty One, is our Father. Now, when, I, when we walk through the Lord's Prayer, I, I, I noted that that language is hugely problematic for some people, both for women but some men as well. Those who've had bad, painful experiences with their earthly fathers or, or those who have been uh, experienced nothing but the absence of a father. And so that language can be problematic. Here's what Daryl Johnson, he, he says it well. The word father is fraught with feelings of disappointment, pain, anger, and in some cases an awful sense of abandonment. So, so what are we to do then when we hear Father and it doesn't warm our hearts? There's not this sense of intimacy when we hear that word. Well, we need to come to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal our understanding. We need to not look on the horizontal plane to our fathers, even if we had good fathers. We need to look to Jesus. We need to look to Scripture, to God. There's a story in the Gospel of John. Jesus has just told his disciples that he will soon leave them. And there's some questions and some dialogue back and forth until the disciple Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Show us the Father. And Jesus says this. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The Father... God, the the creator of the cosmos, has revealed himself fully in his son Jesus. You want to know what God, your father, is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus says that. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's just like me. He's just as good as me. He's just as gentle as me, just as kind, just as welcoming and approachable and full of love. You want to know what the father's like? Look to me. Daryl Johnson writes this, Jesus' open arms are the open arms of the Father. Jesus' open heart is the open heart of the Father. It is the passion of Jesus to help us know His Father as He knows Him, to love His Father as He loves Him, to trust His Father as He trusts Him. If you, though you are evil, can give good gifts, how much more your Father in heaven, the one who loves you, the one who cares for you, the one who is tender and good and kind and wise... Elsewhere, Jesus says to call him Abba, Father, Papa. This this Aramaic term of, of intimacy through the cross, through Christ. God, our fathers, adopted us. We are his sons and daughters. And, and let me be clear God, our Father's love for us does not come on this side of the cross like, like, We were his enemies, and he was angry, and then he sent Jesus, and Jesus died, and now the Father loves us. I want you to hear the verse that is probably the most well-known verse, John 3, 16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. God, the Father, so loved us that he sent Christ. Christ so loved us that he willingly submitted to the Father and he came and he went to the cross and he died for us that we might through faith find life, be adopted as his daughters and his sons. God is our Father. 
How much more, if we though evil will give good gifts, how much more will God our Heavenly Father give us good gifts? Now we try to give good gifts, we mess up, we don't operate with uh, wisdom all the time. Sometimes we screw up in trying to give good gifts. I remember years ago we were on one of our family trips back from BC to uh, Edmonton. Uh, Our kids were young, I don't remember when. At the time, uh, Chrisleen has had celiac forever, I was going to say, for a long, long time. Our oldest and youngest have it, but we didn't know that then, and so we were coming back, and it was always more difficult to, to get food for Chrisleen that was gluten-free on those road trips, right? You couldn't just stop at McDonald's or Subway back then. And so she would often just say, hey, give me a bag of corn chips. And I remember we were in Hinton. We were three hours, whatever that is, three hours from Edmonton. And we were buying her, I think at Friesen Brothers there in Hinton, uh, buying a bag of corn chips for her. And my boys said, hey, can we just have a bag of chips for supper? And I thought, really? Like, we can get burgers, we can get Subway. No, I want chips. So uh, in my lack of wisdom, I said, sure, grab a bag of chips. And so they all got their bag of chips and got in the van and started powering. I don't know if they all finished them, but it wasn't that far along the road where like, oh, daddy, I don't feel very good. And realized, okay, that was a bad gift. That was a foolish gift to give. And, and we will do that as earthly fathers, mothers. But God, our heavenly father, is good and he is wise and he will give good gifts. That's what the text tells us. So third, let's ask the last question. What is the central point? What is it? How how are we to understand this? Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, and your heavenly Father will give good gifts. I want to remind you again of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. We are drawing towards the end of this sermon, to the end of this large block of Jesus' teaching, largest block of Jesus' teaching in the Scriptures. Jesus has been painting a portrait for us of gospelized humanity, of boys and girls, teenagers, men and women, being transformed by the good news that in Christ we are forgiven, in Christ we are declared righteous, clothed with perfection, that, that through Christ we are filled with His Spirit, that our lives begin to change. We we begin to exhibit new characteristics. We begin to live for new purposes, with new behaviors. We, we live with new ambitions, with a new way to relate to the world and those around us. All that has come, and this comes towards the end. So let me ask you this question. Which one of us is sufficient to live such a life? Which one of us can do what, what Jesus has painted here? The reality is that we need help, that we need grace because we fall down so many times, and, and we need power. We need power, God's power, to work in us so that we can grow in these ways, so that these, this transformation can happen. Where can we get what we need? Where can we receive grace and power? Jesus says, ask Seek, knock. Only God can give us what we need. Only God can meet our great need. And good news, He's promised to do that. Jesus here is teaching us first to see our desperate need. 
our utter dependence on the Father, and then secondly, to cry out to Him and, and ask. He, he, says, he, he says, ask, seek, knock. These, these three verbs are present imperative. The, the, the point is there's some verb tense going on in the original that's hard to communicate in English. He's saying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He's calling us just to, to cry out to God uh, just continually with persistence to come to Him daily throughout the day and say, Father, give us power. Fill us with Your power. Move in us. Give us Your grace. Lord, we want to live this life that You've called us to and we cannot do it apart from You. We need to see our need. We need to recognize our dependence. We need to cry out to Him. It's interesting. Luke, in his Gospel, includes something very very similar paragraph, I'm going to read it to you, where he makes this explicit. He says this in Luke's Gospel, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus here is teaching us towards the end of His sermon where He has painted this picture of gospelized lives. And we stand before this convicted and and utterly without hope on our own. And he, he says, look to me. Cry out to me. Ask. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. This hammer blow of repetition. Come to me. Dependent on me. Cry out to me and I will give you good gifts. I will give you all that you need. I will fill you with my spirit. I will pour out my grace. This is not a promise that that we will get everything right, but there is always God's grace, God's power, His indwelling Spirit. He will meet us in our need. He will never let us down. I want to close with a question. Jesus' call here is that we would be people who enter into prayer with a persistence that I would dare say many of us lack. I know I've been convicted even in my study and preparation this week. D.A. Carson writes this, the Western world is not characterized by prayer. By and large, to our unspeakable shame, even genuine Christians in the West are not characterized by prayer. And so I I want to hold up before you this morning this reminder of our great need and of our great and loving Heavenly Father who promises to meet that need and who invites us to be people who pray persistently, who come to Him daily, moment by moment, asking, seeking, knocking. And so my question is, what is Jesus calling you to? What does this look like for us? Because if you're like me, even this recognition that, Father, I, I, don't, I don't do what you're inviting me to do. I don't, I don't I don't seek, I don't ask, I don't knock so like continually. Lord, what would it look like for us to just say, Jesus, we, we hear your invitation. Would you empower us to trust in your goodness? Would you fill us with your power that we might grow to be people of persistent prayer? That we would find ourselves on our knees before you daily, that we would that we would not seek to live this life apart from your indwelling presence. It is so easy, and I speak from my own life, it is so easy for me to be busy doing stuff for God rather than seeking God. The invitation here is to come to Him, to come 
persistently. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. I'm a good father. I will meet your needs. I will empower you for the life that I have called you to. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning. And I pray, Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see the Father more clearly, to see His goodness, His love, and His promise of His empowering presence, Your Spirit. We recognize where we fall down, where we fall short, and we, we rejoice in Your grace. And we ask, Jesus, that You would shape us to be men and women, young and old, who pray, who pray persistently, who come to You recognizing our need and Your good promises, Your goodness. Oh, Father, work in us, we pray, for Your glory, for our transformation and our joy. In Your name we pray.